This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. Today it is my special pleasure to welcome the first of this year's Payne lecturers, His Excellency uh, Sir David Manning, the British Ambassador to the United States. Educated at Oxford and at the Paul H. Nitze School of Advanced International Studies at the Johns Hopkins University, he began his career as a civil service, as a civil servant, he wasn't a civil service unto himself, he was a civil servant, in the Foreign and Commonwealth Office in 1972. He has been posted in Warsaw, New Delhi, Paris, and Moscow, and within the Foreign Office itself, he served as Deputy Undersecretary and as Head of Policy <laughs> Planning. He has represented the United Kingdom as Ambassador to NATO, and in 1994, he was the UK representative to the contact group on Bosnia. Between 1995 and 1998, Sir David was the British ambassador to Israel, and from 2001 to 2003, he was the foreign policy advisor to Prime Minister Tony Blair, whom he assisted in the management of Anglo-American relations, especially in the aftermath of the September 11 attacks and the decision uh, to invade Iraq. Also during this time, he developed a close working relationship with his counterpart, uh, then U.S. National Security Advisor Condoleezza Rice. He assumed his current position as the British Ambassador to the United States uh, in September 2003. As Ambassador, Sir, Sir David continues to work on strengthening the relationship between the United Kingdom and the United States. His lecture today is entitled Energy, a Burning Issue in Foreign Policy. Uh, a subject that preoccupies policymakers, of course, not only in the United States, but around the world. We are very fortunate to have Sir David and Lady Catherine with us today. Please join me in welcoming him and them to Stanford University. Well, many thanks to Professor Chip Blacker for his very generous introduction. And can I begin by saying how grateful I am to him, Stanford University, and to those who are involved with organizing the Franklin Arthur Payne Lecture Series. I know this is one of the best universities in the United States, and therefore it must be one of the best universities in the world, and it is a great privilege to be given a platform here. And I also want to say a particular word of thanks to my old friend, Ambassador Dick Morningstar, for his help with my visit to Stanford. Can I say, by way of introduction, that my remarks today are personal. I don't necessarily want to uh, reflect the views of the British government. I want the freedom to range over my subject, which is the impact of energy on foreign policy, uh, and that needs a, a personal perspective. Uh, I'm not going to claim, in the best traditions of fiction, that all my characters are entirely imaginary, but I am going to claim that my interpretation of them and my reading of the plot is mine alone. When I was thinking about this lecture some months ago, I was struck by a critical, indeed strategic, energy decision that Winston Churchill had to take on the eve of the First World War. And it turns out that Daniel Jurgen has been thinking along similar lines because somewhat to my surprise, when I opened this month's copy of Foreign Affairs, it was to discover that he begins his article, Ensuring Energy Security, with exactly the same Churchillian example that I want to use. Perhaps this is the law of coincidence, perhaps it's the law of relevance, but anyway, I still think it bears repetition. Because in 1911, Churchill faced a difficult decision. Recently appointed First Lord of the Admiralty, 
His task was to ensure that the Royal Navy, symbol at that time of Britain's imperial power, was ready if there were war with Germany. And the question he faced was whether to convert the Navy from coal, its traditional source of fuel, to oil. The attraction of oil was clear, more efficient use of manpower, less use of cargo space for the fuel, and much greater speed. On the other hand, why abandon reliance on safe, secure Welsh coal in favour of distant, insecure oil supplies from Persia? The Churchill, the balance of risk was clear, and he ordered that Britain should base its naval supremacy on oil, and famously he wrote, mastery itself was the prize of the venture. Well, nearly a century later, the challenge of energy is more than ever at the forefront of foreign policy. In the first few months of this year, most of the issues at the top of the agenda have included energy in some form or other. Relations with Iran, Iraq, China, Venezuela and Russia all have energy as a central component. So does terrorism, so by definition does counter-proliferation. The British government, the European Union, the US administration, the multilateral institutions are all faced with a common problem. How can the international community secure reliable, affordable, sustainable, and above all, safe sources of energy? We have to look at this question against a complicated and difficult international background. For many months, the West, and indeed the IAEA, has been grappling with the question of how to monitor the ambitions of the world's fourth largest oil producer to become a nuclear power. Iran's nuclear development program, long clandestine and denied, is directly counter to the international community's determination to avoid the proliferation of weapons-grade nuclear fuel. The UK's agenda for the G8 group of countries last year focused on climate change and development in Africa and both raised key questions about energy. This year, Russia has said that energy security is going to be the key theme of its G8 presidency too. And given the Russians' approach to energy and their dealings with Ukraine, Georgia, and their European neighbours, this, to say the least, is welcome and urgent. On New Year's Day, Russia cut its gas supplies to Ukraine. After four days, after warnings from the US Secretary of State and a period of uncertainty for European countries who depend on Russia for up to 40% of their gas supplies, a deal was brokered and a shaky truce agreed. But the lesson was sharp, the warning clear. Russia's prepared to use its energy resources for political leverage. Two weeks later, a series of explosions on the Russia-Georgia border cut off gas supplies to Tbilisi in the middle of one of the coldest winters on record in the Caucasus. Closer to home, oil prices in the US soared from $24 a barrel in early 2003 to a peak of $70 last September. As a result, President Bush made energy independence a centerpiece of his State of the Union address. Saying that America is addicted to oil, he announced a goal for the US to cut its imports from the Middle East by 75% by 2025. The scarcity of energy supplies and the energy imbalance between nations is a threat to our prosperity and national security. As resources contract, oil-hungry economies will compete for dwindling supplies of hydrocarbons. Competition for fossil fuels is going to increase. As Senator Dick Lugar, the chairman of the US Senate Foreign Relations Committee, recently said, our critical international security goals, including countering nuclear weapons proliferation, supporting new democracies, and promoting sustainable development are at risk because of over-dependence on fossil fuels. 
And I think he spoke over the weekend, I haven't read his speech on this subject again, saying that energy security is now the West's Achilles heel. So I want to turn now to the factors that shape our energy security and assess how these are redefining our foreign policy in the 21st century and then suggest what we might do. Energy resources have long been a major strategic concern. Access to secure sources, control over supply lines, these are issues of national security. It was in 1947, as the Cold War was intensifying, that the US Interior Department first called for a new Manhattan Project, a $10 billion program that would be capable of producing 2 million barrels a day of synthetic fuels. This was prompted by concern at the time over the United States' potential dependence on oil. Fifty years ago, almost exactly, the Suez Crisis arose because the Suez Canal was the route by which Persian Gulf oil was reaching Europe. The canal cut the journey to the United Kingdom to 6,500 miles, almost half that of the journey around the Cape of Good Hope. By 1955, two-thirds of Europe's oil flowed through the canal. Why, argued NASA, should the oil-producing countries receive 50% of the profits from their oil if Egypt didn't receive 50% of the profits from the canal? The canal was Europe's jugular. Hence the warning that Prime Minister Eden gave to the Soviet leaders Volganin and Khrushchev during their visit to London in April 1956, when he said, I must be absolutely blunt about the oil. We could not live without the oil, and we have no intention of being strangled to death. And Eden's anxieties, incidentally, weren't only about oil, but also about the possibility of an influx of Soviet power into the Middle East. The oil crises of the 1970s forced the West to recognize its dependence on cheap oil and the reality that those who controlled supply were in a position to exert direct political pressure on the rest of the international community. In the words of Henry Kissinger, the oil weapon wielded in the form of an embargo altered irrevocably the world as it had grown up in the post-war period. Dr. Kissinger, by his own admission, had before 1973 known little about oil. That would rapidly change. In the US, the shortfall struck at a fundamental belief in the abundance of natural resources. In a matter of months, American motorists saw retail gasoline prices climb 40% and had to sit in gas lines. That was what prompted President Nixon to launch Project Independence in 1973, three decades after it had been mooted under the Truman administration. In the spirit of the Apollo and Manhattan projects, he set out a series of measures for the US to meet its own energy needs without depending on any foreign energy source. He set the target as 1980. Seven years later, in response to a second oil crisis, the 1980 Carter Doctrine declared any attempt by an outside force to gain control of the Persian Gulf will be regarded as an assault on the vital interests of the United States of America and will be repelled by any means necessary, including military force. Echoes here, it seems to me, of Anthony Eden in 1956. So warnings about oil addiction and energy dependence have a long pedigree. And one might add that so does a reluctance to act on those warnings, whether here in the US or more widely. One further historical reminder. In 1990, in the first Gulf War, the West faced the threat of a dictator who was prepared to seize Kuwait. Had he held on to it, Saddam Hussein would have controlled 20% of OPEC production and 20% of world oil reserves. He would have been in a position to intimidate neighboring countries and would certainly have been the dominant power 
in the Persian Gulf. So what have we learnt from such episodes? In the short term, to allow market forces to allocate supplies and to depend on the use of excess production capacity and strategic reserves in case of disruption. In the longer term, to diversify the types of energy we use and to, divide, to diversify our sources of supply, as well as to seek efficiency gains that limit the economic damages of price, of price shocks. We've also learned, with varying degrees of success, to develop flexible energy policies based on market mechanisms. The goal has been to allow the market to operate, to reduce the threat of disruption and to mitigate the effects of a disruption if it does occur. But this approach is no longer enough. The energy challenge is now more pressing than ever. Despite those warnings down the decades, our societies have become more, not less, vulnerable to the politics of energy. Oil and gas prices are near record highs. The question we now need to frame for ourselves isn't so much what we do about energy security, but about energy insecurity. There are at least five factors that are driving the current energy crisis. First, rapid population growth in rapidly industrialising countries is fueling rising energy demand. The International Energy Agency predicts that energy demand will rise by 60% by 2030. Global consumption of oil is 50% higher now than it was 20 years ago. And we've seen a 15% increase since the year 2000. One major oil company is fond of reminding us it took 125 years to consume the first trillion barrels of oil. It'll take 35 years to consume the second. The whole world is hooked on convenient, transportable, versatile oil. A fifth of the projected global increase will fuel the US, which by 2025 could be using as much oil as Canada, the European Union, Japan, Australia and New Zealand combined are using today. A 20-mile round trip in an average car to buy a gallon of milk burns a gallon of gasoline at about half the milk's cost. The extraordinary global oil industry has made US gasoline abundant, cheaper than bottled water, and half to a quarter cheaper than gasoline in Europe or Japan. But the scale of future demand is going to be driven not this time by the US and Western Europe, but by their major emerging economies. China and India have 40% of the world's population between them, as much as the populations of the next 20 largest countries put together. Billions of people living in developing countries whose economies are twice as oil-intensive as ours need to fuel their development. Just one-eighth of the world's people own cars, but many more want them, and they will soon acquire them. The World Bank estimates ownership, car ownership in China at seven vehicles per thousand people, compared to more than 480 per thousand here in the United States. By 2030, its forecast is to rise towards Western levels. The pace of economic change is breakneck. China's economy has averaged 9.5% growth over the last 20 years. In 2005, China used 26% of the world's crude steel, 37% of the cotton, and 47% of the cement. By 2005, China had sold over 350 million mobile phones, up from 7 million in 1996, and that's double the number you have in the United States. Now, this revolution needs energy. India's consumption of oil has doubled since 1992, 
China's thirst for oil grew by more than 15% alone in 2004 and has doubled since 1994 and will double again between 2003 and 2010. And that's why we're seeing China seeking oil partners across the globe from Sudan to Saudi Arabia. It was no surprise that King Abdullah of Saudi Arabia's first visit as monarch this January included a stop in China. Asia and the Far East now account for over 50% of Saudi Arabia's oil exports. It's why we saw the Chinese bid in the summer of 2005 for the US-owned Unical. Competing with these emerging giants for energy is going to strain international relations. And global competition for energy sources threatens stability. Second, the supplies of oil on which we depend are finite. Global oil production is nearing its peak. Although there's intense debate about exactly when this is going to happen, and this is something that Daniel Jurgen discusses in that foreign affairs article I referred to, current estimates seem to be converging on some point between 2010 and 2020. Oil itself is never exactly going to run out, as the saying goes, the Stone Age didn't end because we ran out of stone. But one unavoidable fact is that the economics of pumping it in future are highly uncertain. It's extraordinary, it seems to me, that a century into the age of oil, with the global economy dependent on $3 trillion worth of this liquid each year, we don't even know how much is left. The International Energy Agency predicts that if we do nothing, global oil, will reach 120, global oil demand will reach 121 million barrels a day by 2030. That's up from 85 million barrels today. So that will require increasing production by 37 million barrels a day over the next 25 years, of which 25 million barrels a day has yet to be discovered. That is to say, from a British point of view, we have to find four petroleum systems that are each the size of the North Sea. And we have to ask ourselves, is this realistic? Production from existing fields is dropping at about 5% a year. Only one barrel of oil is now being discovered for every four consumed. Globally, the discovery rate of untapped oil peaked in the late 1960s. Over the past decade, oil production has been falling in 33 of the world's 48 largest oil-producing countries, including six of the 11 members of OPEC. So how are we then going to meet the soaring demand that the growing global economy requires. The third driver of energy insecurity is the growing geographic concentration of energy reserves. Oil and gas supplies are becoming more concentrated and less secure. 80% of oil and gas trade is now from three regions, Russia, West Africa, and the Gulf. By 2025, 25 million barrels a day, that's one in three of production, will come from Saudi Arabia Iran and Iraq. Over 80% of global reserves are in the hands of governments and national oil companies. So what we're seeing is a convergence of geological difficulty with geopolitical uncertainty. The top eight non-Gulf suppliers are Angola, Azerbaijan, Colombia, Kazakhstan, Mexico, Nigeria, Russia and Venezuela. The US depends more than ever on the supplies from countries where there are, to say the least, political uncertainties and who may well not subscribe to US values. 
and with whom relations are decidedly volatile. In some cases, we in the West are paying large sums of oil and gas to countries that are at best equivocal about tackling terrorism and are at worst supporting it. One result of this geographical concentration is that oil and gas flows through a handful of vulnerable transit routes. These choke points may become increasingly vulnerable to attack the Straits of Hormuz and Bab el-Mandab, the Straits of Malacca and the Bosphorus. Already nearly 20% of global oil supply flows through one narrow waterway, the Straits of Hormuz. And when it comes to concentration, the Persian Gulf alone has approximately 65% of declared reserves. Saudi Arabia, the world's sole swing producer, holds a quarter of global reserves and in the spring of 2004 controlled 80 to 85% of spare output capacity. Al-Qaeda calls oil the umbilical cord and lifeline of the Crusader community. And in April 2004, specifically incited attacks on key Persian Gulf installations. Two-thirds of Saudi oil goes through one processing plant and two terminals. A half of current Saudi capacity comes from one oil field. Fourth, the last 18 months have shown us that the spare capacity on which we previously relied is limited. Hurricanes Katrina and Rita removed 1.4 million barrels of production a day from the international markets. That's more than the total production from Libya or Angola. Today's high prices are a product of the fact that the oil markets are vulnerable to disruptions by natural disaster or conflict. Individual countries don't need to be directly affected by a supply shock in order to feel the repercussions. A disruption in one part of the world quickly impacts on world prices and supply. Because oil is traded globally, we are all vulnerable. Finally, our dependence on hydrocarbons is leading to rising carbon emissions and their potentially devastating impact on the global environment. I don't think there's any longer any serious scientific doubt that climate change is occurring. Last year, Prime Minister Tony Blair made climate change one of his two key priorities for the UK presidency of the G8 countries. And just before the G8 Glen Eagles summit, the National Academies of Science of all the G8 countries, along with those of India, China and Brazil, published a statement which said, most of the warming in recent decades can be attributed to human activity. The scientific understanding of climate change is now sufficiently clear to justify nations taking prompt action. A lack of full scientific uncertainty about some aspects of climate change is not a reason for delaying an immediate response. Well, we in the UK, and I think most of the global scientific community, are convinced that the global economy's use of hydrocarbons is the primary driver of this abrupt temperature shift and associated sea level rise. Last month, American researchers presented evidence that the Greenland ice cap has doubled its melting rate in the last five years. It's now estimated to be losing 220 cubic kilometers of water a year. And to give you some sense of what that means, the city of Los Angeles uses about one cubic kilometer of water a year. If the cap melts completely, global sea levels will rise by around seven meters. Now, there's plenty that we don't know about climate science. But we can say with certainty that there hasn't been the current levels of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere for 400,000 years, possibly 4 million years, which puts 
the longevity of our own species into some sort of perspective. We know that the 10 warmest years on record have been since 1991, the five warmest years since 1997, and the single warmest year was last year. Swiss Ray, the world's second largest reinsurer, has forecast that the insurance costs from rising sea levels, severe droughts, and other results of climate change will total $265 billion a year by 2010, so four years from now. Climate change will also lead to a higher risk of conflict over scarce resources and of natural disasters. And it's going to hit the poorest hardest, especially those in low-lying areas or those affected by the northward spread of diseases such as malaria. A global temperature rise of one degree Celsius will equal a rise of up to four degrees in Africa. Changes of this magnitude are going to exacerbate global problems such as drought, famine, disease, regional insecurity, population displacement, and they will seriously <coughs> impede poor countries' efforts to tackle poverty and develop sustainably. And changes of this magnitude will cause huge upheavals that will bring with them huge foreign policy crises. So here then are five factors anyway which are changing the energy landscape. Rising demand, dwindling supply, greater concentration of resources in the hands of a few, limited spare capacity, and the environmental impacts of our energy use. A word now on the consequences of energy resource wealth for the lucky producer countries, and I put the word lucky in inverted commas, and the impact that this has on the wider international community. First, corruption, that driver of instability, can take many forms, but the most extreme is the looting of state assets by elites. Many of the most corrupt countries earn the bulk of their export revenues from resources that include oil and gas, diamonds, minerals and timber. In Angola, an IMF audit has been unable to account for hundreds of millions of dollars in oil revenue that went missing under previous governments. Corruption is theft from national exchequers. Dollars spent on fast cars or stashed in foreign bank accounts is money not spent on schools, health care, accountable security forces and other essential public services. Nigeria, which also has a titanic struggle with corruption, has received more than $300 billion in oil revenues in the past 25 years, but its per capita income remains below $1 a day. Energy wealth also helps to prop up weak regimes. It insulates them from internal and international pressure. They calculate that the international community is likely to lower its voice, pull its punches, because of its energy dependence. The addict needs the pusher. These regimes lack the, lack the motivation to make the reforms to their economies that are essential for sustainable economic growth. The sad fact is, too, that many of the countries that are resource-rich are the least likely to build accountable and transparent government structures, structures they need if they are to develop into open and democratic societies. Dependence on energy exports distorts political and economic institutions, it centralizes wealth, and it makes leaders resistant to change, while at the same time providing them with sufficient resources to stave off necessary reforms. Reliance on resource wealth reduces the imperative to engage with citizens and promote healthy civil society. Only 9% of world oil reserves are held by countries that are considered free by Freedom House. 
Energy resources can also be a source of internal instability and conflict. Mineral wealth often fuels internal grievances that cause conflict and civil war. Secrecy about oil payments leads to public resentment. In recent years, armed gangs have roamed the Niger Delta, looking for opportunities to extort oil wealth, and as the recent kidnappings of oil workers have shown, the demands are becoming increasingly political. These factors are all well documented. Countries that are highly dependent on revenues from oil and gas, timber and minerals score lower on the UN Human Development Index, have a greater probability of conflict and have larger shares of their population in poverty. The so-called lucky countries that are resource rich, in fact, turn out to suffer from the natural resource curse. And there's an Angolan proverb which says, if God loved Angola, he would turn all the diamonds into rocks and all the oil into seawater. It's not just the stunting and distorting impact on political development. The resource curse often brings about economic instability. The rush of foreign earnings drives up the value of the currency. And this in turn makes domestically produced goods less competitive at home and abroad. The income generated by resource exports is often squandered too on extravagant military programs, which in turn create internal instability. In the decade from 1984 to 94, OPEC members' share of annual military expenditure as a share of total government expenditure was three times as much as developed countries. The natural resource curse also leads to regional instability. Sometimes this takes the form of simple rivalry for resources of the sort that you can see at the moment in the Caspian Basin. Sometimes energy-rich countries uh, seek to buy regional influence, and then we can look at what's going on today in Latin America. And mineral wealth can be used just as easily to put pressure on neighbours and intimidate them, particularly other developing countries that are resource poor, as it can to seduce them and buy their support. So energy resources have a very direct bearing on international stability. Badly used, they foster corruption, internal dissent, economic imbalance and bad government, with clear and destructive consequences for the rest of the international community. For us as consumer countries, there's a tension between our need to secure energy supplies and our other foreign policy goals. Iran is OPEC's second largest oil exporter and holds 35% of global gas reserves. Experts predict that interruptions in the flow of Iranian crude to world markets, which is something that they're hinting at at the moment, could send prices over $100 a barrel. It doesn't take a PhD in international relations to work out that the response of some countries to Iran's nuclear ambitions has been coloured by Iran's role in the global energy market. Or take an historical case. In the 1970s, the dominance of Soviet gas supplies to Europe was a cause for real concern. The first Soviet exports to Poland began in the mid-1940s, but they remained very small scale. Then, in 1970, a 20-year contract was signed with West Germany, and plans followed for a pipeline across Germany to supply France with Soviet, ga <coughs> Soviet gas. In the context of the Arab embargo, the Soviet Union positioned itself as a more reliable source of energy than the Middle East. The advent of North Sea gas lessened the UK's dependence on Soviet gas. But today, we in Britain have to return to the issue of security and diversity, because we again are becoming a net importer of gas. And like the rest of our European partners, we took note of what happened to Ukraine on the 1st of January this year. Britain's going to be affected 
by developments in Russia, whether directly through a link with Russia's pipeline network or indirectly given the increasingly integrated European market. Russia has the world's largest natural gas resources, controlled in large part through one state-owned company, Gazprom. In the past, Gazprom has scrupulously maintained security of supply to its Western European customers, and it never turned off the taps to its West European clients, even in the depths of the Cold War. But the expansion of Western European demand obviously offers Gazprom now not only increasing revenue, but increasing influence. In the light of the Ukraine episode, we're bound to ask ourselves about the reliability of our energy supplies. Where is the balance between the supply and demand? How far is this a mutual dependence that transcends political ups and downs? How much of a risk is it sensible for us to take? Solutions will involve diversification, a more liberalized EU energy market, closer relations with other Central Asian gas suppliers, strong international commitments, as well as more investment in the Russian energy sector. But in the meantime, we have to face the fact that the European Union will depend for at least a decade on a Russia that demonstrated in early January that it's prepared to turn off the taps. What will President Putin do next? What will President Putin's successors do? We don't know. Energy instability also has an economic impact on consumer countries. We now face the prospect of sustained high oil prices. Some analysts, as I said, are forecasting spikes of up to $100 this year. Over the last 30 years, oil market disruptions are estimated to have cost the U.S. economy $7 trillion. Eight of ten post-war U.S. recessions closely followed an oil price spike. According to Alan Greenspan, all economic downturns in the United States since 1973 have been preceded by sharp increases in the price of oil. For example, the 1973 disruption of one-eighth of the U.S. supply doubled unemployment and slashed GDP growth in 1975 by something up to 5.5%. The energy challenges we face are daunting, they're urgent, but I don't think they're insurmountable. But we do need to look at the problems in the round and in the medium and long term, rather than just focus on the latest crisis. Above all, we need to take a strategic view. I want to conclude with two proposals. The first concerns technology. Whether or not you're concerned about the impact of carbon dioxide on the stability of our atmosphere or about reducing your dependence on foreign oil, it's clear that the solution is technology. How do we transform the technologies on which our societies are based? How do we leverage the scientific breakthroughs, the expertise in research and development, and allow the flows of finance to bring these technologies to market? What market mechanisms can be used to stimulate the investment required what is the role of government relative to that of the private sector? Well, it's much easier to list these questions than to answer them. Some government intervention is certainly necessary. Voluntary activity by business alone isn't enough. We have to put the right incentives in place for the private sector to invest heavily in clean technology. In the UK, we're trying to do that through a range of policies, including a form of carbon tax, the national cap-and-trade scheme for carbon dioxide emissions. 
As a result, our greenhouse gas emissions are over 14% down compared with where they were in 1990. And this is during a period when our economy has grown over 35%. So we, anyway, are convinced that you don't need to sacrifice economic prosperity to meet energy and environmental goals. Last year at the G8 Glen Eagles Summit, the G8 members launched an action plan which, launched, look, which looked across the range of international collaboration on technology and asked what else should be done. Prime Minister Blair said at the time, we need to launch a new green industrial revolution in clean, low-carbon energy technologies. This G8 dialogue, as it's now called, is due to have its second annual ministerial meeting in Mexico this year and to report back to the G8 next year. <coughs> but the level of investment that's going to be required won't come from governments alone. It will have to come from the private sector, acting commercially in a market environment. The International Energy Agency predicts that $16 trillion worth of investment is going to be needed to meet the rise in energy demand by 2030. So that's $568 billion a year. This very campus is the centre of far-reaching research on our energy future. For the last 30 years, the Energy Modelling Forum has been developing analytical methods and models for energy planning and policy analysis. Stanford's Global Climate and Energy Project, which is only three years old, I think, already has some 28 research projects underway, aimed to develop a portfolio of technology options for a global energy system while reducing greenhouse gas emissions. But one thing's sure, no one technology is going to provide the solution. Each is going to have a role to play, natural gas, wind and solar, clean coal, hydrogen, sedilistic ethanol. We need a range of technologies that's going to wean us off hydrocarbons and avoid irreversible damage to the atmosphere. And we don't need to wait before developing these solutions. A lot can be achieved through the application of existing technologies. Governments, for their part, have got to be wary of picking technology winners. They have a terrible record trying to do that. But with that caveat, I want to highlight two technologies to which we should pay more attention and where governments are implicated. The first is nuclear power. It remains highly controversial politically. The US administration has stated its intent to see a new nuclear plant built in the US, the first for over 30 years. In the UK, we are currently reviewing our energy policy. The key question is whether we need nuclear power to meet our long-term energy security and carbon reduction goals. My personal view, and it is a personal view, not a government one, is that nuclear power has got to be part of the solution. I accept that there are serious problems that we've got to address and overcome, concerns about safety and the risk to the public, concerns about what to do with waste product, concerns about the massive costs of a new phase of reactor building. More broadly, we need to consider how we can ensure safe global access to nuclear power while managing the risk of proliferation. We've grappled, though, with this problem since the beginning of the atomic age. Much of the power generation needs of developing countries could be met by nuclear power. It's a zero-carbon source of energy as opposed to coal, to which many emerging economies are now turning. We have the technology. There are over 130 nuclear power reactors either under construction, in the planning phase, or under consideration around the globe. In my view, we have to accept that this is not a technology in decline. We have to shift our focus to finding ways to ensure its safe and secure operation. We're already co collaborating internationally to consider some of these issues. In February 2005, my own country signed up to membership 
of Generation 4 International Forum, joining the United States, France, Japan and six others to develop the next generation of nuclear reactors. Last month, the Bush administration launched the Global Nuclear Energy Partnership, requesting $250 million of funding to develop new proliferation-resistant technologies with, with other nations possessing advanced nuclear expertise. The partnership plans to develop advanced burner reactors to improve the recycling potential of used fuel without the separation of plutonium. They will then develop a fuel services program for developing nations and help those countries to build small-scale proliferation-resistant reactors that can burn down the spent fuel. This will allow countries to access nuclear technology cost-effectively in exchange for their commitment to forego enrichment and reprocessing. My own view is we should take this further. A single international body could be set up to build, operate and supervise a new generation of light water reactors in countries that are non-proliferation treaty signatories. They'd be able to access nuclear technology cost-effectively, but without the risk to the international non-proliferation regime. Second technology is energy efficiency. This may sound counterintuitive, but we should, I think, think of efficiency as a technology in its own right. It has massive potential to improve our environmental performance and our energy security. Last autumn, after the severe impacts of Katrina and Rita on US energy infrastructure, the administration recognized this and called for a massive improvement in US energy efficiency. Energy saved is energy that doesn't need to be produced. Efficiency is an important contributor to energy security. We still need a much more concerted effort to reduce demand. And this is the relatively easy bit. Energy efficiency measures can in many cases be implemented at minimal cost. 50% of the UK's targets to cut carbon emissions will come by 2020 from energy efficiency measures. In the US, the Department of Energy reports that if every American homeowner replaced their five most used light bulbs with more efficient compact fluorescents, the nation would save 800 billion kilowatt hours of electricity, which is the equivalent of shutting down 21 power plants. Efficiency is also good for business. BP implemented an internal trading program to cut their carbon emissions by 10% over 10 years. Through targeting energy efficiencies, they met that goal in two years, and they made approximately $635 million worth in efficiency savings. Companies such as BP or GE are arguing that they see real business opportunity in developing the next generation of green technologies, and they're investing huge sums in research and development so that they can lead the technology revolution and dominate innovation. So they see opportunity, not threat, and surely here, in the United States, the home of innovation, of scientific excellence, you have the skills, the genius, not only to lead the green industrial and green energy revolution, but to profit handsomely from it on a global scale. So rather than see this as a threat, see it as a huge business opportunity. But we need to make the argument so publics understand the US uses 26% of the world's oil but has only 4% of the world's population. The US fuel economy standards for cars hasn't changed since 1990. We have the technology to do much better. The Energy Information Administration calculates that if currently available auto-efficiency technology were implemented, it would cut in half the projected US growth in gasoline demand over the next 10 years. 
And let me raise the issue of tax, if only to point out that in the UK, the equivalent of a US gallon of gasoline costs $5.88. So that's over twice the price here in the US. America's federal gasoline tax of 18.4 cents a gallon has not been increased since 1993. And this brings me to my second proposal for trying to deal with the energy problem. And that's a transformation in the way we think about and approach these issues. We need a much more integrated and much more strategic approach. Too often, energy sits in its own institutional silo. We're not going to solve these issues until we see that they're not energy issues alone. They affect our environmental policy, our trade policy, our international development policy. They lie at the heart of our economic policy. And as I've argued, they have a central impact on our national security and foreign policy. Energy policy has to be integrated better across governments and between governments. In the European Union, we've made a start. At a meeting in Hampton Court convened by the Prime Minister last October, EU leaders agreed a framework for a common European energy policy. This would diversify sources of power, develop a genuinely open energy market, develop a shared vision of European needs, focus on developing energy efficiency and clean technologies, and develop a coherent approach to EU dialogue with major suppliers. The underlying theme is that we need to work towards a genuinely open and functioning internal market in electricity and gas in Europe. If private sector investment in new technologies is to be leveraged, it will need to be in a well-functioning global market. We need better information transparency. Both We need to improve the stability of our regulatory frameworks. That will help market participants evaluate opportunities from a commercial standpoint, something that's fair to all. And if the Russia-Ukraine episode teaches us anything, it's the greater transparency, stability and openness will help us achieve our energy goals, not greater management of markets by governments. To help achieve this integration, I think Europe and the US need a far more coherent transatlantic dialogue about energy. For too long, we have dealt with these issues in isolation from one another. We need to recognize there's no such thing as energy independence. Instead, we face the inevitability of energy interdependence. We share the same challenges, and we're going to need to work together to develop the solutions. In part, this will require us to work with experts in the private sector and the leading academic institutions, such as Stanford. But we also need to consider whether we need stronger international institutions to address our energy concerns. We already have, in the form of the International Energy Agency, a center of expertise for energy consumers and a mechanism to coordinate international stock releases. This operated very effectively, incidentally, in the aftermath of the hurricanes last year. We have a mechanism for dialogue between key producers and consumers through the International Energy Forum. And we're working through the Joint Oil Data Initiative to improve the data on the oil markets. But we still tend to consider these questions in isolation. We're, we react to the immediate challenges and crises without seeing the underlying trends, without calculating the sum of the parts. A more integrated transatlantic energy policy is overdue, one that assesses the strategic challenges and their political consequences. And we now have two immediate opportunities in the next six months to do something about this. The first is the G8 summit, given Russia's choice of energy as a key topic. Our goal should be a strong public commitment to energy security and stability spelled out in the G8 declaration. 
and I hope that Russia will in this context fulfil its promise to sign up to the Energy Charter Treaty, which is aimed at integrating the energy sectors of the former Soviet Union and Eastern Europe with wider global markets. A second opportunity is this year's EU-US summit, in which I hope energy is going to be a main topic of discussion. And we should use this summit to establish a new EU-US strategic energy forum to consider all aspects of energy, diversification, development of alternative energy sources, above all the security of our supplies. This forum, which should report regularly to ministers, should share analyses, share expertise, provide leadership on energy issues. Indeed, I think that a successful EU-US energy forum could invigorate and extend a wider EU-US relationship that sometimes, perhaps rather too often, is preoccupied with trade disputes rather than with forging transatlantic cooperation on the major strategic issues that confront us. And this forum could also provide a focus or a docking mechanism for OPEC and other major suppliers as they think about their relationships with consumer countries. I end where I began. Energy is central to our foreign policy because it is central to national security. Wherever we look, problems are energy-driven. The imperative to collaborate may now be as strong as that which forced us to build collective security structures during the Cold War. And a final thought, this isn't a problem that can wait for 10 years. As these problems become ever more pressing and serious, we need the machinery to understand and react to them, to share our knowledge and to implement our solutions. If we get the decisions right, we open up the prospect of a new technological revolution that will create opportunities and transfer, transform the world in ways just as profound as earlier industrial revolutions. But if we get them wrong, we face the prospect of competition and conflict over resources and destabilizing, perhaps destroying, the environment that we depend on. As the bumper sticker says, good planets are hard to find. Thank you. you'll know a lot more about it than me then. I need, I need you to come and, and give your lecture to my class next morning. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because it was terrific. There's one question I had, and that is, um, you mentioned the, the need of dialogue between consumer and producers, but uh, <clears throat> one concern I have is, is the lack of dialogue between consumers, and maybe the biggest consumers, us, and China, emerging China. Yeah. Just to give you an idea, Unical, the deal with Unical was kind of ridiculous. Unical's total oil reserves are 1.8 billion barrels. That's world consumption for one month. So it's, it's more symbolic. It's more yeah. question of yeah. 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 Ian, we haven't found a way to manage this emerging conflict, I think. I don't know what 
No, well, I, I would very much agree with you. I think one of the important things that was focused on at, at this G8 summit in Glen Eagles was how do we bring China and India into the debate, not just about energy, but about the global economy. And clearly, you know, it transcends what I've been talking about today. It's, it's vital in all sorts of ways, and I don't feel that we found a comfortable way of doing this yet. Um, I think Unicar was very interesting, but I think it also, again, is much more complicated than just being an energy issue. I think it's about, do the United States and China see each other as partners? Well, on Wednesdays, Fridays, and Sundays, they do. But on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays, they're not sure. And so, you know, you have to decide, I think, basically, how are you going to build your relationship with China generally and decide, are we partners, are we competitors, is China an enemy? I mean, these are, these are issues that are all swirling around. And before you can really find a, a coherent uh, policy on, on energy with China, I think you have to have a, a clear idea about the sort of relationship across the board. This is very difficult to do. I'm not suggesting there's an easy solution. But I do think that, uh, you know, the Unical thing, as you say, was, a, was more about touching a raw nerve uh, than it was about coherent energy policy. But I think the most urgent thing at the moment, probably for us as the transatlantic community, is to think about how do we integrate China, India, Brazil, whatever, into the global system. And the fact that we and you had really a big disagreement and uh, sort of walked past each other over the EU-China arms embargo was a very interesting example of how we have failed, I think, to engage on some of these big strategic discussions. One reason I would love to see energy at the center of EU-US discussions from now on is because this, this key relationship between the EU and the US, I won't say that it is content-free, of course it isn't, but it seems to me that it doesn't address these big problems. I mean, we have in Dick Morningstar an ambassador from, who was the ambassador of the US to the EU, and he, he will know very well what, uh, what is involved in this. But we surely should be addressing together these globalization issues, these energy issues. What do we do about China? What are we going to do about Russia? Uh, and we just don't have a mechanism at the moment for doing that. Please. Hi, my name is Chris Brandt. I'm a TV producer, and I was considering producing a show about energy. So if you are interested in appearing, you're welcome. <laughs> my, my question is, uh, you mentioned that the U.S. could cut energy for automobiles by hand by using existing technologies. So I'm told. And I saw a somewhat a similar um, idea mentioned that the average mileage of a car in the U.S. and they're about 200 to 300 million cars, that's about 17 miles per gallon. And if you move to um, hybrid cars, which yeah. are existing today, yeah. you can get more than 34 miles per gallon. So if you would, and so if this could happen over a period of, let's say, 15 or 20 years, probably not in the U.S., but maybe in the UE, EU through legislation, yeah. um, they could actually, the U.S. could become independent of Middle Eastern oil. Of course, the um, European cars, they are probably more fuel efficient already, so maybe they can't cut uh, 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 as much. Do you think it's a, a, a desire in the EU through, through legislation to really become independent of Middle Eastern oil? Would they really extend themselves? Uh, are they visionary enough? The, uh, and what can you do to advise well, the, the... There's certainly pressure in the EU to reduce dependency on oil. Um, you know, whether the EU as a whole will legislate for this. I think it is difficult to do because we have different tax regimes and so on within in our respective countries. But you know, coming back to your point, yes, I think, I think people do want to do that, not least because gas is very, very expensive in Europe. So if you can save money on your tank of gas, it really, you know, this means a lot. I mean, it's very, as I said, $5.88 $5 a gallon on average. 
I'm told, and again, I'm, I'm now trespassing onto you know, territory which I don't, uh, I don't know deeply, but if, if most, anywhere in Europe, if most car journeys are 20 miles or less, if you can get into the position where the technology is hybrid and you use the 20-mile round trip, you're using electricity, and we have the technology to do that with hybrids, then immediately you have a very dramatic impact on the petrol, on your gas consumption. Now, we haven't at the moment got the cars to do this. We may not have the technology, but it's, it's not impossible to get there. And so I, I do think that in, in Europe, because of the high tax rate, there is a real incentive, and people complain like hell about it. And it's not, I think, necessarily that they feel ideologically driven to do this, but their pocketbooks tell them it's smart. And I think that you'll see more and more of that in Europe. Please. My name is Anupam Goyal, Dr. Anupam Goyal. I was postdoc in electrical engineering in the School of Medicine. And my question is, uh, akin to Universal Postal Union or International Telecommunication Union, uh, it seems there exist international energy agencies. What role can the organization play in terms of ensuring greater standardization of demand and supply and the tariffs, and can it play a greater role in this context for world peace? And the second question is, how can government encourage citizens to take more energy-efficient measures, like replacing light bulbs? So what were the prompt actions on part of citizens that would uh, lead to these great things? Well, on your first question, I was asked what, what, what role for the International Energy Agency. Um, I, you know, I don't think the international agency, as currently constructed, can provide the sort of global framework you're talking about. I think it's, it proved last year it can do some very important things, like releasing supplies onto the, onto the market at crucial moments to try and stabilize prices and stabilize demand. And I think some people were quite surprised at the efficient way it did do that. But it doesn't seem to me that it is the embryo of the sort of organization you're talking about. And I might be wrong about this. You know, I have not worked at the... National Energy Agency, so maybe it has greater potential than I think it has. But I think that's unlikely to work. I mean, my own view, and perhaps that's simply my own conditioning, is that, you know, we in the transatlantic community ought to start by putting our own house in order before we think that there can be some sort of global organization that everybody's going to subscribe to which regulates supply and demand. I just, I think this is, you know, unfortunately beyond reach. But I would very much like to see a mechanism developed within Europe, and there's quite a lot of pressure for this now, and our the, uh, the head of the European Commission, uh, Mr. Barroso, was over here not long ago, gave a rather important speech at Georgetown University, so if you're interested, I mean, have a look for that. But I do think we need, in Europe, to decide what our, our priorities are, how we're going to meet our energy uh, needs, and we need to talk to the United States about it and Canada. Uh, because I do feel myself that if this, this spirals out of control, it will be just as much of a security threat to us as threats, previous threats were in, in the Cold War. It'll be quite different, but they'll be very, very significant. Um, so I would rather start there than look for a global solution to this. But I'm quite sure you're right that you know, once we have got that, we have to have a discussion, as I suggested in my remarks, with the suppliers. And in reply to an earlier question, I don't think you can then start doing this and leaving out China and India and the other great economies. But I think you have to start somewhere, and I wouldn't start with the universal. I'd start trying building up, as it were. Um, as for incentives, how, how can we get people to, 
to, to do things. Well, I think, you know, there is both legislative provision and there is encouragement and private action. Uh, governments can, through their legislation, uh, encourage people to do certain things. And I was just talking about the high rate of tax on gas in my own country. That undoubtedly is a stimulus to people not to buy SUVs, but to buy cars that are either, you know, fuel efficient. So you can certainly try and make people do those sorts of things. But I, I do think myself, this, I mean, this may be rather sort of naive really, but I think it's also about people's attitudes. You know, it's about explaining, as I said, tell, tell the publics what's going on. Because I think, you know, people aren't, aren't fools. They understand if it's, it's spelled out to them. This is what we think is happening to the climate. These are the vulnerabilities that we now are faced with in terms of our security. This is what could happen to us. And I think it, once you get that, you, you know, the role of government is still important, but it's not coercive in the same way. And I think that in, in Europe, there is a different attitude to this. I think the mood here is changing, incidentally. I mean, again, this may be, uh, my wife would say I'm an inveterate optimist, but you know, I, do, I do think the mood is shifting here on this kind of thing. Um, and I, I, it's, I think it's about the time scale as much now as the argument. Both things are very important. But once people understand what's at stake, then I think you start to create, anyway, in open societies, the kind of, uh, the kind of public climate you need to do difficult things. Well, I think that's about political leadership. Um, I don't think people are going to think about 2030 tomorrow unless you try and spell out for them what 2030 will be like for their kids if they don't start thinking about it. Uh, so it's not natural. No, I don't think you know, we're all trying to get through the next 24 hours not the next 24 years. But if you are in political leadership, I think that's your role. I think you have to say, this is how I see it, this is what we need to do, it's tough. Um, but I, as I say, I, I, you know, I do think people are sensible. If you, if you spell out these challenges, I think you can take people with you. But it isn't always popular, and it doesn't necessarily get you elected. Please. Um, my name is Jeff Costas, I'm a professor of environmental engineering, and I'm also the director of the and I'd like to commend you very much on, on your comments. I, I think they resonated certainly very strongly with, uh, with my own views and certainly with, with the plans that I institute in terms of uh, energy. Um, you've talked about the Global Climate Energy Program, which is an investment in technologies that essentially buy energy uh, buy and reduce uh, global greenhouse gas emissions. Talked about uh, energy efficiency, which is on the on the demand side, and I think there are definitely existing technologies off the shelf right now that, if implemented, can can result in great savings. And I think there's a, a terrific case study that, if you ever have a chance to meet Arthur Rosenfeld, who's the California Energy Commissioner, he can tell you about refrigerator motors in California and the incredible savings in terms of the number of nuclear power plants that we did not have to build in California. The result of making smaller investments like that. Simple things like motors. Other devices like they call the two watt uh, vampire, which is these little devices that exist in, in all your appliances, when, even when you think they're off, they're on. And they're just simply having standards that lower that to half a watt can save the power. So I'm a firm believer in, in that. And at Stanford and the Woods Institute, we will be starting a program that, uh, on energy efficiency and looking at one of the things, though, that I think uh, we haven't really come to terms with is uh, something you touched on in your response to the previous question about public attitudes. And I think that's a very underrated uh, 
area, and I think one that we tend to take a little for granted. And I don't think it's that obvious that the public are quite ready to accept these arguments as rational as they may be. And I think we have to, and it's one thing we're trying to do, we have to engage social scientists and humanists and people who study the human condition in a far more aggressive manner in dealing with these questions and finding out what exactly does the public think about and, and what are they prepared to do in order to implement some of these solutions that are there and ready to be implemented yeah. simply haven't. I don't think it's, it could be a matter of political will, but are the public really ready to accept this? Do they really understand what the implication? I think one of the roles of the university and certainly of our institute is to try and, 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 and look at that. In California, in a few weeks, I think they're going to announce an initiative regarding an, an extraction tax or a severance tax of a few cents per gallon of gasoline that will generate a $1 billion fund, hardly a drop compared to the $568 billion that you're talking about. Yeah, the yeah. And it can generate $100 million a year for 10 years for research in, in, in energy and changing sort of California's energy fund. I don't even want to predict the veracity of a debate that will come about just for one single billion dollars, which is yeah. nothing, simply because of, of this issue that I don't think we've dealt with and need to in the future. So I'd like to hear what your comment is on that. I think it's an underrated and underinvested in uh, activity. I think we need to be a lot more aggressive in dealing with the, the human condition and attitude uh, if we really are going to make progress in getting these, these technologies adopted and these solutions. <coughs> Well, I think you make a very fair point, and maybe I made it sound easier than it is. I didn't mean to suggest shaping and changing public opinion is an easy thing to do. I do, however, believe it's a political task to do that. I think that's what political leadership is about, and there are all sorts of issues that you could pick. It doesn't have to be energy. Um, yeah, I expect you're right. I mean, there'll be terrific resistance, and people will say, well, why are we doing it? Why isn't everybody else having to do it? And I, I can see all the arguments. I just, I just have a sense, though, that as you get, as people start to home in on things like the melting ice caps, uh, like the impact this has on, you know, biodiversity, as they, uh, as they see these issues come in, in Britain, you know, the idea that we, that the, the sea level is going to rise seven meters. If you then look at a map of Britain, um, you know, move out of London tomorrow, you know, is quite a good idea. Uh, I think you have to bring it home to people in a way that touches their own lives and. I don't think that's necessarily an easy or a quick thing to do, but I, I do think it is something that leaders should do, and I, I personally don't think it is impossible to change people's views on this. Um, and, you know, I, I see in my own country, I do think there's been a real shift in the last 20 years. Unfortunately, I don't think we've got 20 years. You know, I think it's very, very urgent to get on with this. But, you know, I do think, too, that universities need to unite. You know, universities of the world unite on this, because you are an enormously powerful international network in your own right. Uh, you're powerful nationally, the great universities, but you're very powerful in shaping the debate and the argument across all our countries. And I don't think that people like you, people in, in the university, should underestimate what they can do through the force of the arguments they can make, and indeed the sort of experiments that are going on in Stanford, um, as long as people link up and are very, very deliberate. They become an interna intellectual international pressure group. And I think you should do that. Uh, and I'm not sure how organized it is. Perhaps it's more organized than I think it is. But there's no doubt that the, the mass media in Britain will certainly pick up articles in things like nature. And they may simplify them, and they may reduce the argument in a way that is extremely irritating to the guys who wrote the piece. Nevertheless, you can get a mass market for your argument, I think, if it's well-directed and well-organized. 
and I, I would urge you to do it. Yeah. My name is Peter Nilsson. I'm an undergrad at Stanford, and um, you spoke extensively about the importance of civilian nuclear technology, but um, I don't believe you mentioned the um, U.S.-India civilian nuclear agreement. Um, what's your opinion of that? Well, uh, we have come out in support of it, but I think it's important to see exactly what, what is involved in this. I mean, there, there, there are two, there are conflicting arguments about it. That one, one is that, thank goodness, we've, we've started to bring India inside the tent, and it's been completely unrealistic to pretend that India isn't a nuclear power, and therefore it is much better to bring them into the suppliers' group so that they operate under the same... Uh, constraints of the rest of us. The other is to say, well, you're making, this is a special, this is special treatment, you've just driven a coach and horses through the NPT, you're telling the Iranians they can't have nuclear technology, and somehow you're now, as it were, acquiescing in, in what the Indians have done. And I think there is, there is a real debate here, and it's a difficult call. I think it's right to try and bring the Indians in. I think, uh, you know, they're out there, they, they're, they're capable of doing all this, whether we say they should or shouldn't, in fact. I mean, actually, the Indians have been very responsible, as far as I know, in terms of uh, nuclear exports. But I think on the whole, it is better to try and find arrangements that sustain us and uh, bring this huge nuclear power into, as I say, into the tent. But you do need to know exactly what the small print of this thing says, and it is very controversial, and some of the, you know, some of the commentators are, are bitterly hostile to it. But uh, I think on balance, we think it's, it's, it's better to try than not. Please. I'm Bud Conrad, an investor. I'm very impressed that a man in your position would point to a peak oil near four to ten years from now. And I worry that that impact on the world in terms of potential crisis of competition between consumers, as Dr. Noor has pointed out. But I wonder what your vision of how this will unfold politically is, particularly thinking about uh, Iran, uh, Venezuela, Nigeria, uh, uh, Darfur, uh, just maybe some images of what's likely to happen. Well, let me first of all say that no, I, I did say that the peak, is, it suggested it's between 2010 and, and, and 2020, um, but that you can't prove that, and that may be wrong. And as I said, Daniel Jürgen in his article in Foreign Affairs is skeptical about this. And anyway, there is the argument that, well, it, it, as it becomes more expensive, the, you know, the impulse to, to develop new fields and look for new fields goes greater because the economic return, suddenly these fields are not marginal anymore. So maybe that affects the, the argument. But it, it does look, anyway, quite difficult to see how you're going to close the projected gaps as we see them at the moment. Um, the, the vision, I, you know, I, I, I don't want to be too precise about this vision because it's, it's, you, can, you can paint all kinds of scenarios. What I do think, though, is if we do not get ourselves together on this and see what these challenges are and we explain them to our publics and we work together as a transatlantic community and then more widely with other partners around the world, then we will see you know, real competition, which could be very, very destabilizing. I don't know exactly where this will happen. You know, will there be some hugely destabilizing event? Will there be a series of smaller events but that destabilize countries in Africa or whatever? I don't know. But I do think it will become harder and harder to, see a, to, 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 be, to find yourself in an environment where you have some measure of predictability about energy prices and the, the sort of international stability that goes with that. That's what worries me. And I, I don't want to try and give you, you know, the answer, because I don't think there is one. But I do think we need to be aware that this is sort of eating away, potentially, at the, at, at the stability that we're going to need over the next 20 years. We ought to be addressing it. We'll have to make the next question the last question. The I will let you choose, Chip. Right there. I'm 
Dan Leon of Palo resident. If a major civil war breaks out in Iraq and is joined by Iraq's neighbors, uh, what is the implication for energy insecurity? And uh, do we have any options to, uh, to control it in any way? Well, if there is a complete breakdown in Iraq and there's civil war, I think it's bound to affect um, the market. You know, whether or not Iraqi oil is actually particularly in play, and it may or may not be. It's, it's running, I think, at around 1.8 million barrels a day at the moment. I, I, I haven't got the figures, but uh, it's bound to affect the market. And as it's very tight, it will have, a, it will have a, an effect on the price. I mean, I don't know. You, you get, again, you know, your scenario planning, if you're saying suddenly we see lots of countries around Iraq sucked into some... Uh, great, uh, great war. Then yes, it will. It will be very serious. Um, but at the moment, uh, you know, we're let, let us hope that this is not going to, going to materialise. But I think there's a sort of a different point, really, which is instability anywhere in, in these producers is bound to produce a knock-on effect in terms of international confidence in the market price. So it could be Iraq, it could be Venezuela, it could be again the Russians turning the tap off. Uh, I think we're we're, we're subject to these. These, uh, these, these shifts, really quite small shifts in confidence, which have a, a major effect on price and therefore on the market and on the, therefore on the global economy. And so, I mean, Iraq is a mega example of this, but I don't think it doesn't have to be Iraq. You know, it can, it, Nigeria now, we're suddenly faced with really serious instability in the Niger Delta. Maybe it isn't so sudden. You know, when we look back, we'll see this has been a sequence of events that's been building up. But the impact for global stability of these things, because the supply situation is so tight, I think can be, can be very profound. This is uh, <coughs> Sir David and Lady Catherine's first trip to uh, Stanford. Um, and if you feel, as I do, about the quality of the talk we just heard, I would like you to indicate through your applause level whether that is... <laughs> Thank you very much, all of you. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.